listen to God's word. Our Father, we come to you this morning seeking that you would speak to us through your word, uh, that we might see the reason for the word and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as central to your word. We recognize that we can't do this alone, that we can't come to you in our own strength, but we, we need Jesus. In fact, we can't come to you unless the Father draws us. And so we turn to you, our Lord and our God, and ask that you would bring us in. And we ask that you would give us understanding, uh, a little bit deeper, that you would change our hearts, that we might be people who have lives that are distinct and different because you're our God. And we ask that we will be people uh, who live for the one who died and lives now for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen. There's been a lot of uh, flooding recently. You might be aware of it. And when you go to cross a, um, over a waterway, uh, there are sort of flood markers. And if the markers are very low and you are very careful, and it's actually not in a time of flood, but just extra rain, you might try and cross. But if the water's high, they say, if it's flooded, forget it. Because the danger is that your car will be washed away downstream. And many of us have seen uh, footage and images of people and heard the stories of people who tried to cross the flooded river and were washed away. All of us are driving in the car of life. Uh, We are driving down busy roads And every now and then we get caught in suffering and in difficulty. And our text today teaches us how to do suffering well. But every now and then the waters rise, there's a downpour and a flood comes through and we try and cross that waterway of suffering, we get caught and it's as if we are drowning and we fear getting washed Away. And so this morning, as we look through 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, as we do regularly here at City Reach Marion, just ordinarily going through books of the Bible, seeing what God has to say to us, we will see how to cross over suffering in order to suffer well, in order to, as verse 19 says, suffer according to God's will and entrust our souls to a faithful creator whilst doing good. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So firstly, in our text, in verses 12 and 13, there are four tests for suffering that I want to give to you. Tests of suffering. The first test is the test of true faith. Now we actually get this. Uh, from verse 12 where it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So this idea is that suffering is normal in not just everyone's life, but it's normal in the Christian life and actually reveals whether you have faith in God or not because there are different ways to handle our suffering. Uh, In Luke chapter 18, uh, when Jesus is teaching uh, a particular parable called the parable of the sower, he says this about people who hear the word of God, receive it, but then fall away. This is what he says. And the ones on the rock 
are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. Now what we find is that suffering is a way to test our faith, to see, in fact, whether it is genuine or not. Jesus said, and many of us know others that have believed at some point and it appeared to be they were believing with joy, but when suffering came along, they fell away. They found other ways to handle the suffering rather than through faith in God because there are other ways aside from being a Christian and putting a trust in God to handle suffering. But suffering is the first test of a true faith. Now the fascinating thing here is that in verse 13, it tells Christians that you should not be surprised, in verse 12 it says, you should not be surprised when a fiery trial of suffering comes through in your life, when you feel like you're drowning. But it says, verse 13, to rejoice. To rejoice. And so this test of suffering as a Christian is that if you come through it and you have a sense of uncommon joy in your life as a result of your faith in God through suffering, that means you're a Christian because that's not the way it ought to be according to the horizontal, worldly way. And typically, if you're not a Christian or your faith has not taken root, you will fall away when suffering comes, when you are tested by your suffering. Why does it tell us that we ought to rejoice when we go through the ordinary sufferings of this world? And I must point out that they are ordinary, in that Christians are just as ordinary as everyone else. They suffer just as much as everybody else. Therefore, we should not be surprised. Why should we rejoice? It says, the second half of verse 13, we rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so there is this special joy which comes from God for those that suffer when they put their trust in him because they know that their faithful God, Jesus Christ, suffered too. And so we're more like him when we suffer and, as verse 19 says, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. God uses suffering in the life of the Christian to draw you nearer to him, to bring about a joy that clearly doesn't depend on your circumstances. It actually, as you go through that river of suffering, you end up filled with a supernatural joy that doesn't come from your circumstances but comes from God. We know this from Jesus because he's known to us as the crucified one. He's the lamb that was slain. Jesus' personal identity is so tied to suffering that we ought to realise that God is doing something in us to make us more like Jesus when we suffer too. In the ordinary sufferings of this life, the things that happen, you know, the, the death of a loved one, you know, the overwhelming issues that come with mental health and acute forms of mental health, 
the difficulty that comes from being in financial distress or relational distress, whatever that might be. The most difficult things in our life and health issues, chronic ones in particular, are up there. We know that God is testing our faith and making us more like Jesus as a result. So the first test is the test of true faith. The second test is the test of robust theology. The test of robust theology. Whether your theology can handle it when there's suffering in your life. Whether your understanding of God can handle it when there's suffering in your life. Peter tells us that Christians will suffer fiery trials just like everybody else. And yet some, some people, some Christians are totally overwhelmed. They are even dismayed or perplexed and eventually disillusioned when they are faced with suffering because they have been taught that Christians do not suffer like everybody else. That's actually false teaching. Uh, it's commonly known as the prosperity gospel or prosperity teaching. That is, if you do good things for God, that he will bless you with a healthy and wealthy life and you will experience less suffering than the next person. That's false teaching. It's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. And yet some people that claim to be teachers of the gospel teach that. And so some people who've grown up in that environment or have come to believe that teaching, when they face personal suffering of an overwhelming nature, they have no grid for it, no understanding for it. Now I want to say, if you've grown up in that environment and you've been really challenged by your own suffering and you don't have a place of understanding for it, firstly, I want you to listen well and carefully to God's word. Secondly, I want you not to take it on personally that it's your fault that those who taught you falsely will be held accountable. Thirdly, I want you to know that God is with you in the midst of it. We have a saviour who did not pass through death without suffering, but he went into it, right to its bottom, as far as down low as you can possibly go, and he went through death himself. And so to be a Christian is to be like Christ and to see him in the midst of our difficulty. So it's okay to have your theology cracked because Jesus will fill the cracks of poor theology. This idea that Christians don't suffer like everybody else or that if you even give enough money to church, it's been said, or that if you do enough particular things in your life, you will avoid suffering, this kind of... Uh, Prosperity teaching is like a dead-end street. And at the end of that street is a swift waterway that you want to get to the other side of, but you cannot get through because it is flooded. And if you drive through it, you will be swept away. Christians need to abandon this dead-end street of the prosperity gospel and turn down the avenue of verse 19, which says, those who suffer according to God's will. We must cross over the bridge of suffering which God has given us in Jesus Christ and enter into the gates of joy with a road that is paved by grace because our Saviour himself has walked that path. So there's the test of true faith that suffering does. It proves whether we are genuine in the faith or not. 
Secondly, there's the test of robust theology. But thirdly, there is the test of Christian maturity. Uh, James, Jesus' brother, in his letter, puts it in a similar way to Peter in James chapter 1. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, Peter's teaching us to look at what God is doing through suffering as a means that he will grow our faith and our inner person, our soul. James is saying the same thing. But James puts it in a very helpful way for us. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. That is where Peter says, rejoice, which is respond to the difficulty you're going through, knowing that God is doing a good thing, Peter says, let it, uh, sorry, James says, let it have its full effect. Respond to suffering, realizing that God is doing something good here, and embrace it. That's the teaching. Embrace what God is doing in the suffering. That does not mean that when we have suffering, we sort of put up a stoic face and just pretend it's not there. It does not mean that we ignore suffering but we step through it asking and seeking what God is doing in the midst of it, that he would grow our character, realizing that God's end goal is for our good, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How can you be a person who's lacking in nothing when anything the world throws at you, you are still full and satisfied? That is an incredibly mature place to be and is one that God produces in the person, guess what? Through suffering, through fiery trials. In order to make um, precious metals into their purest form, they must go through a superheated process. And God has so designed the Christian in the same way. What Peter says is a fiery trial, is a superheated process to take what is your soul of precious metal, make it pure. That is the way that God works uh, with precious metals and is the same for the Christian. The Bible tells us that Jesus himself was made perfect through suffering. That is who he is in his character was proved to be perfect through his suffering. So Jesus has done it. Jesus did it personally. He is our example. And now he invites us to see our suffering through a new light that he is doing good in our lives as a result. So the test of true faith, the test of robust theology, the test of Christian maturity, and fourthly, the test of a religion that is dead but one that will turn to faith in Jesus. Let me explain. There's a woman uh, born in the 19th century called Fanny Crosby. And she was uh, made blind uh, as a young baby because she had an illness and the quack doctor prescribed hot mustard to put on her eyeballs. And she went blind as a result. She grew up a church-going woman, but during a cholera outbreak in North America in 1849, when she was 29 years old, a biographer recorded. In this atmosphere of death and gloom, Fanny became increasingly introspective over her soul's welfare. 
She began to realize that something was lacking in her spiritual life. She knew that she had gotten wrapped up in a social, political and educational reform and did not have a true love for God in her heart. Now some of us know this woman, Fanny Crosby, for the over 9,000 hymns that she wrote during her life as a blind woman. But in this time, her spiritual state went into further and further turmoil as more and more people died around her during this cholera outbreak. She was seeing the destruction of suffering around her and she wondered about the state of her own soul. A year later, in 1850, when she began to attend church, not just for the tradition this time, but she was looking to God to answer the questions of her own soul. Lord, why is it like this? Why can't I reconcile this suffering on the outside for myself? When she began to look to God, not tradition, she met him. This is what it says. Finally, on November 20, it seemed to her that the light must indeed come then or never. That evening, she went to the altar alone. She prayed the congreg- as the congregation began to sing Isaac Watts' grand old hymn, Alas, and did my Saviour bleed. And when they reached the great words of consecration contained in the last verse, Here, Lord, I give myself away, Fanny expressed that commitment as the desire of her heart, yielding her life to Christ. Immediately, her very soul was flooded with a celestial light, and she sprang to her feet, literally shouting, Hallelujah. So though Fanny Cosby was blind, she could see. You see, fiery trials are so that we cannot see the God in the midst of them, so we can only access him by faith. And that is true relationship with him. That is when God becomes real. Not just out there somewhere, but here and personal today through suffering. So I've seen the four tests of suffering in our text. Now we look to what Peter describes as the blessing of suffering and a particular kind of suffering. In verse 14, he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So there's an ordinary kind of suffering that Christians face along with everybody else and there's a particular kind of suffering that Christians face and that is being persecuted for being a Christian. People will speak ill of you because you are a Christian. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3.12 it says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to be a Christian, you will be persecuted. That's what you're signing up for, or that's what you've signed up for. Now, there's varying degrees of persecution, of course. Uh, We've all heard of the Christians being thrown to the lions uh, in the Colosseum uh, in the early church, which was soon after this letter was written uh, to the Christians in the first century. So this was happening around the time that Peter writes this letter. Christians were being killed, made fun of, made a spectacle of. Uh, They were being maligned and laughed at and abused and losing their jobs, etc., etc., in this time. And we do see... Hints of this, even in modern Australia today. We do see hints of this, not to that degree, but we do see hints of it. But the teaching here is that to be an ordinary Christian person, 
you will suffer for Christ's sake. That is, to be a Christian, or in verse 16 it says, if one suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. You will suffer as a Christian. But Peter goes further. He says, you will be blessed when you suffer specifically for being a Christian. God has a special blessing for you. What does he say? He says in verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let me be really specific about this. If you are being persecuted for being a Christian, you will experience the presence of God in a particular way to meet you in your needs at that time. That is the teaching right here. God's Spirit will come to rest upon you so that you will know that He is there with you and you'll hear His words. I will never leave you nor forsake you as He's with you. John Patton was a a missionary to the New Hebrides or uh, Vanuatu in the Pacific and uh, this was a very interesting people group that he was seeking to reach with the uh, the message of Christ uh, and the message that Jesus Christ is Lord uh, to people who hadn't heard about Jesus before. These people were, these people groups were cannibals and so they were known for being quite ferocious particularly to missionaries. Some of them did actually get eaten. Uh, when John Patton was uh, on one of his uh, missionary endeavours in Vanuatu, uh, some of the tribe's people came to find him and to kill him and perhaps even eat him. And this is what he, he climbed up a tree and this is what he says. I climbed into the tree and I was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharge of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Saviour's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? John Patton is saying that he wishes he was back there. He wishes he was back up that tree under threat of death because of how sweet and close Jesus was to him at that time. This is what Peter is talking about, to rejoice. He's saying to glorify God in that name, not be ashamed when you suffer as a Christian. This is the essence of what it means to follow Jesus, is to trust him at his word, knowing that he will give you what you need in that very moment. It may be so good that you wish you were back there. So there is a blessing to suffering well. But Peter goes further. He says you can glorify God in that name when you suffer for being a Christian in verse 16. How can you glorify God? 
How could, like, in what ways specifically can you glorify God when you're suffering for being a Christian? Well, you can glorify God because you are like Christ. Because Christ suffered and was persecuted, you are suffering like him when you are persecuted for his name. You are blessed, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. You can glorify God because the Spirit himself rests upon you particularly. You have a special encounter with God when you are persecuted for being a Christian in whatever way. And we've talked about those particular ways throughout this series. But if you are being maligned, mistreated, spoken ill of because you're trying to be faithful to Jesus, you can glorify God because he is blessing you. We're told earlier in 1 Peter that people will come to faith in Jesus as you suffer well for him. When people speak ill of you, they will see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. People will come to faith in Jesus as a result of you suffering for the name of Christ. You can also glorify God because as we've already spoken of, Christians grow as they suffer. It's a crude example, but you know, people work out to get strong. They do weights. You know, they do heavier and heavier weights and God, in a way, uses suffering to make us stronger. We're told in verse 15, though, that there is not a blessing for those who are Christians who suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And we're told in verse 17 that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That is, Christian people who do evil, do the wrong thing, who sin in particularly bad ways. We've had a few mentioned here already. Murderer, thief, evil, do a meddler. God will judge you. Now, alarm bells might be ringing for some of you thinking, does God judge his own people? Well, our text says he does. Hebrews 12 clarifies it, that the judgment of God on his own people when they do evil is always fatherly discipline. It's always within relationship with him. God doesn't cast out his people because they sin. In fact, he draws them in nearer. His purpose in giving us discipline. So discipline is probably a better word for us to pick up on. When our God disciplines us, it is so that we may not sin. so that we may not have the ill that comes with sin. So how does God allow his fatherly discipline or his fatherly judgment to come upon his people? Well, I want to firstly say that we will not bear this in eternity. There is no uh, special place between heaven and hell where you will pay off your sins. It's known in the Roman Catholic Church as purgatory. It's an invention of the Roman Catholic Church. It's never taught on. It's not even hinted at in the Bible that we have before us. So Jesus has paid for all of our sins for all eternity. There is no judgment to come when it comes to the eternal judgment of God for Christians. It is paid for and done. You are clean and righteous in the sight of God. But God does allow us to experience the natural consequences of our sin. That is, if you intentionally hurt people, you will experience broken relationships with those people. 
The book of Proverbs tells us if you commit adultery, your life will implode and be destroyed, even if you're a Christian. God allows us to have the natural consequences of our actions. That is some of his fatherly discipline. He also uses the state to give us due consequences. Again, we see this earlier in the book of Peter. God's use of the state, when the state is doing good, is to punish evil. And so if you do evil, it is God's work to allow you to be punished for doing that whilst you're on earth. We see in other places in the Bible, particularly in the book of James and also 1 Corinthians, that sometimes you will get sick physically, have an illness that comes upon you because God is bringing judgment upon you. Now, this isn't the case in every case. Right? Jesus actually teaches that. That this is not the, in every case that people have uh, a sickness because of God's judgment. In fact, often it's just because we live in a world where we experience suffering. It's just a result of being in a, a world which is broken and sinful. But in some cases, and this is why we must be careful before the living God, that in some cases our illness is because of our sin. And so that is why it says in James chapter 5, to confess our sins to one another and the prayer of faith will heal the person that is sick. We actually practice that here as an eldership. It tells you to come to the elders, they will anoint you with oil and pray for you. If you are sick and you want to be prayed for by the eldership here, we will anoint you with oil and pray for you. And one of the things we do is we ask you if there's any sin in your life to examine yourself, if there's any sin in your life that you need to confess before God in order that you may be healed. That's what the Bible teaches. Now this may not be popular, but it's true. Far better to get what is true from God rather than to live on in suffering without knowing the truth. Lastly, regarding uh, God bringing his fatherly discipline upon his people is that he's always working it for our good. For all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Whatever he is doing, he is doing because he loves you. Whatever he is doing in your life, he is doing because he cares about you to the uttermost. How do we know that? Because we have a God who suffered for every sin that we have done, we are doing, and we will do. He suffered for them eternally so that we might just have our fatherly care, our fatherly discipline from our God, our Father, to help us not to sin. So we've looked at the tests of suffering. We've looked at the blessing of suffering well. And just as a, a side note, that there is not a blessing uh, for those who reject God as Christians and do evil. But lastly, I want to tell you about the power to suffer well. The standard is pretty high, is it not? Read the text. The standard is pretty high. It seems difficult. Seems extraordinarily difficult. I want to use a metaphor to explain this uh, section of teaching of the gate of God. The gate of God. There's three components to uh, getting into this gate. First, there's the latch. You must undo the latch in order to access this power that God gives to suffer well. Secondly, you must actually open the gate itself. But thirdly, you have to enter in. 
You can't stay on the outside having opened the latch and even opened the gate. You have to go in to receive this power to suffer well. So what is the latch? Well, I want to say about the latch that you can try and get in without opening the latch, but you won't be able to. Have you ever tried to open a gate and you haven't opened the latch? You can shake it and rattle it, but it doesn't open. You must open the latch first. What is the latch? It's knowing that God's purposes for our lives is through suffering, not apart from it. Let me say that again. The latch is knowing that God's purpose for our lives is through suffering, not apart from it. This is a teaching that we have to understand. Many people, many, many people ask the question of why me when it comes to suffering? Why am I experiencing this particular thing and why now? Now, we don't have all the answers, but we do have some answers. We go to God's Word to find out definitively what He says about our conditions. And we know that God is working in us, in our very soul, the most innermost and strongest part of who we really are. That is where He's working when we are suffering. Not apart from it, not just that you'll get through it, but that he will change you in the midst of it. So the latch, the latch is a change of understanding. The latch is realising that God does something through suffering, not apart from it. God doesn't call us to avoid suffering, but to embrace what he's doing in the midst of it, because you will not avoid suffering in your life. And many people spend their whole lives trying to avoid it and miss out on the blessing that God gives through it. However, opening the latch is not enough. Mere mental assent, mere understanding this Christian truth is not enough. You must now open the gate. If the latch is released, you must now come to pull the gate open. What is the gate What is opening the gate? It is seeing that God's own personal will for himself was to suffer. It is to see that God's own personal will for himself was to suffer. The great symbol of Christianity, what is it? A cross. It's a cross. It takes central place in what we think of when we think of Christianity. We have an empty cross too as Protestant Christians because we believe that Jesus is not on it, so it's empty. He rose again and so we have great hope. We don't have Christ on the cross. We have an empty cross, but it is still a powerful symbol. It tells us that God works out good through suffering, that his purpose is to change us because of suffering as he himself did. We do not have a God that shirked his responsibilities. We do not have a God that avoided it when it counted most. We have a God that wrestled 
with the incoming suffering that he knew he was about to have, the agony they talk about that Jesus had when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. These are the last moments before he would go to the cross. In the dark, he wrestled. He wrestled with whether he would do it. But what did he pray? Three times he said, not my will, but yours be done. Three times he did that. Three times in the Bible is a sense of completeness. The idea that Jesus is entirely willing to lay aside his humanity, which doesn't want to suffer, and say to God the Father, not my will, but yours be done. And this is Jesus acting as God too. So he's saying, I'm united in one will, Father and Son together. I want you to notice that Jesus actually experienced what Peter teaches here, that an angel came and what strengthened him. As Jesus was obedient to the will of God the Father, an angel came and strengthened him. And that is what Peter talks about here. If you are obedient, willing to suffer for Jesus' sake, God will strengthen you by his presence in a particular way. That's what Jesus has won for us in this garden. Jesus himself opened the gate. In this garden, Jesus showed us that God himself has suffering at the centre of his purposes. But it is not the end. It is not the end. What does it say in verse 13? But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's a joy now, but there's a greater joy later. What does the Bible tell us? That it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame. That Jesus went through it. But he did it for what was next. He did it for the glory that was to come. Hope is a very powerful thing if your hope is set in the right place. So we've talked about the latch. That is knowing that God's purposes for us personally come not apart from, but through suffering. We've seen the gate, we've taken hold of the gate, and we've opened the gate. And the gate is that the purposes of God himself in Jesus Christ was to suffer. He did not shirk it, but he embraced it, even at the cost of his own life. But lastly, we must enter the gate There's no use opening the latch, taking hold of the gate to open it, understanding these things mentally, knowing that God has a purpose for you in your suffering, knowing that Jesus himself suffered and so God's purposes are centrally located in suffering. That is not enough just to know these things. You must enter in. You must enter the gate. I want you to notice this, that death in general is ordinary. But Jesus' death was not ordinary. It was utterly unique because Jesus died for the sins of humanity. Jesus died for our sin. It was unique in that his death was one of atonement. It was 
him in our place for our sin so that we would not have to bear our sin under the just judgment of God for all eternity. I was li- uh, I've been reading a book about the early years of a preacher called Charles Haddon Spurgeon from the 19th century. And one of the things that distressed him as a young man before he came to faith in Jesus was this idea of a bottomless pit. And the metaphor of the bottomless pit is this idea that you will fall for all eternity further and further away from God if you die apart from him. And as each day, each year, each decade, each century, each millennia, each 10,000 years, each 100,000 years passes on, you fall further and further and further away from the presence of God. And that utterly distressed this young man. And yet it was when he realised that Christ had come to free him from that. Free him from suffering by entering into suffering for Charles Spurgeon that he came to faith. So Jesus' death was ordinary. It was not ordinary, it was extraordinary. Jesus' death wasn't just to identify with us, though he did identify with us in suffering, but it was to die for us. But the, the thing that really grabs you, the thing that really takes you in to enter in to God's presence is that he didn't just die for people generally. He didn't just do it as a symbol. This isn't just a thing that we do. We come to church and we hear about what Jesus has done, but that he did it for you. This morning, I don't want you to think that Jesus died for someone else here. This, here, I want you to realize that he died for you personally. That his mind thought of you. That his mind thought of you going into that bottomless pit and to save you from it. That his mind thought to save you from the just judgment of God for what you have done that is evil that he thought of you personally. Verse 19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How can you entrust your soul to God? What does it mean to entrust? It means to take hold of him totally. You can only totally take hold of someone else Let him take hold of you entirely in the same motion when he is utterly trustworthy. And if you know that he did all of this for you personally, then you have entered the gate. The latch has been opened. You've opened the gate, but now you have stepped in. And so this is where we access what is said in three words that is our job description once we understand this as Christians. It says, while doing good. Your job as a Christian is to suffer well according to God's will while doing good. And the doing good comes after we entrust our souls to Him. Now the doing good is very simply put... I could think of three good things that we can do as we suffer. 
but I'm sure God has a billion. But I'll give you three. The first good is that humility is acquired from suffering. Humility is acquired from suffering. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. You will walk in a closer relationship with God after you've suffered because you will be more humble. You will trust less in yourself and more upon Him. The second good is that you will be able to comfort others with what God has comforted you with when you walked through suffering. That is, you will be a better minister of the gospel to people who are suffering because you have suffered. One of the things that we talk about here in our pastoral care at City Reach Marion is side by side. The idea that we walk through life together with other people, helping them, ministering God's word, sharing God's truth, pointing one another to Jesus, praying for one another, entering into one another's lives. We do this by sharing how God helped us when we were suffering, when others are suffering through similar things. That's the second good. The third good is this, is that you can proclaim Christ to others who are in crisis from your own experience. Many people actually come to faith in God in the midst of a crisis, when the floodwaters have picked up, when their suffering becomes overwhelming and they realise that this world does not have that much to offer when actually the test of suffering comes through. You know, when we actually look at the end of our lives, we look at eternity, we look at death, and we try and avoid these things for most of our lives, we try and avoid suffering for most of our lives, but when we really look at them, we realise, I need something better than this. And you, if you've suffered, have something good to share with those who are suffering who don't know Jesus. You can say, there's a way. There's a truth and there's a life and his name is Jesus. You can point others to him. Fanny Crosby, this blind woman who wrote around 9,000 hymns during her life, was actually one of the most prolific hymn writers during the 19th century. Her suffering both in blindness and also being near others during that cholera outbreak produced a faith in her that was rock solid and sure. God did something in her through her own suffering that made her so aware of Jesus. She wrote the hymn, Blessed Assurance. Let me read a part of it out for you. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my saviour all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my saviour all the day long. Though she was blind, she could see. Though she was blind in her suffering, God showed her Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you. We thank you that you suffered first for us. Otherwise, all of this would be wasted, it would be pointless. But you suffered first for us. Lord, let us see the meaning of that. Let us enter the gate. 
Lord, that we might see that it was done personally. That our names were on your mind. Lord Jesus, we thank you that only your mind was capable of knowing that. That only your body was capable of bearing all of humanity's sins. And we thank you that you took them and paid them in full. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are risen from the dead. That our hope is not in the grave, but it is in heaven with you. That we look forward to that day of rejoicing on the day when you return. Or we will be with you before that. Lord, help us to be people of hope together. People who share hope with one another, who walk side by side together. Lord, help us to be people who don't see the world of suffering and dismay, but rather point others to the Christ. We give you thanks, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.